You know, I think this might be our very first pre-roll spot on Astonishing Legends. What's that? You mean the first 20 minutes of the show where we ramble on aimlessly about everything under the sun other than the subject of the episode? No, no, we call that our cold open. (laughs) (laughs) This pre-roll, I feel, has been a long time coming. You see, we've had more than a few listeners over the last year and a half tell us that there's this one podcast we should check out called Tannis. So not long after that, we started listening, and they were right, because we totally dig it. And at this point, I'd actually been listening to it almost since it started. Tannis is a docudrama that hits on a lot of the same subjects we cover here on Astonishing Legends, like portals to other dimensions, secret societies, vanishing towns, abductions, missing time, and actually, I think it takes place in that, what's that part of the country that you're from, Forrest? Uh, Otherworldly entities and shadowy billionaires obsessed with mysterious phenomena. It's all in there. Well, what hooked me when I started listening? is that some of the things I'd heard of, you know, like the Voynich Manuscript or Aleister Crowley, but then a lot of it I hadn't heard of. So I was like, wait, wait, is this real? And then I couldn't wait to look it up. But that's the fun part for me. Anyway, Tannis is an addictive, hugely entertaining, and engrossing rabbit hole. Tannis' season three finale is this Wednesday, August 9th, but you should start from the beginning and binge listen. You'll be glad you did. You can find Tannis or its two sister shows, The Black Tapes and Rabbits at Apple Podcasts, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded in pre-roll. This week's episode of Astonishing Legends is brought to you by Blue Apron, That's It, and our contributors at Patreon.com. And we're back. (laughs) What was that? Oh, that was my Agent Cooper impression from the latest Twin Peaks series, The Return. He's kind of in a dream state. Oh, nice. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, there is so much going on in Astonishing Legends right now. It is a busy time, that's for sure. And I want to apologize for us going up late this week. I'm a little under the weather, and it set us back a bit. I thought I could power through, but then I realized the outline I was working on for the show was word salad. (laughs) And that is different from our regular outlines because... Uh, Very funny. Um, Anyway, neither (laughs) Ray nor snow nor gloom of having a cold shall keep us from our appointed round. So like Forrest said, things have been busy in the home office, and I'm not sure where to start, so I'm just going to dive in here. Although many of you know we've had a Facebook page for a while, this past week, a couple of listeners there asked why we didn't have a public group for people to hang out in and chat. And we thought, yeah, why don't we have one of those? Yeah, so Tess, our head of research, and Quaid, a member of the Astonishing Research Corps, made one, and man, did it fill up fast. Yeah, it had somewhere around 700 members join up in just over 24 hours, and it is on fuego with activity. So if you're looking for a place to hang out and talk to other listeners, that group is a great place to go. If you're anti-Facebook... We also have a subreddit, which is easy enough to find, but maybe not as (laughs) (laughs) community-oriented. Okay, so what else? Oh, the bookstore. Right, that's something we've been meaning to do for a while, but it was a low priority because it's a bit tedious to set up, and the income for the show from it is nearly negligible, but we wanted to offer it as a service to you guys. So we've gone through, or Tess has rather, and selected books associated with each episode and made an Amazon store on our website where you can go and find them by episode and order them if you want. Our top-of-the-page navigation is a little crowded right now, so we're not exactly sure where we're going to put a clickable link for it yet. But you can find it right now by simply going to astonishinglegends.com slash bookstore. Now, speaking of store, our regular merchandise store is at our website, too. And there's a button at the top of our homepage at astonishinglegends.com that will take you right to it. There are some featured products right on the main page, but you can see a full selection of men's shirts, women's shirts, stickers, and hats. And although we sold out of our first run of coffee mugs, a few weeks ago. We just greenlit a super cool new design, and we should have those in the next week or two, so keep an eye out for those. Yes, and finally, so many of you
you asked for it, we made the theme to our show a ringtone. Sarah, our amazingly talented editor, created a 30-second version of our theme, because that's the longest they'll allow, and we've made it available for purchase in the iTunes store, as well as tunes. <laughs> tunes. It's okay. Wait. It's like the word tunes, but it's Wait. got two U's in the oh, middle. I'm sorry. I thought you burped there. Yeah, no. Okay, tunes. No. Yeah, tunes. The, the, T-U-U-N-E-S. The ringtone can be added to iPhones or Androids. Just search for Astonishing Legends theme in either one of those stores. Well, since our composer, Judson Crane, initially donated the track to us, he, he did, right? He yeah, he donated Okay, good. It. Yeah. I, I, I just want to make sure you ask. <laughs> yeah. Having no idea our show would grow as big as it has, we're donating all the profits from the sale of the ringtone back to him. And finally, a reminder that we'll be at Podcast Movement August 23rd through the 25th in Anaheim, California. If you'd like to attend, you can save $50 off by using the promo code LEGENDS50. No one's going to remember all this stuff. I know, but at least we said it. <laughs> Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. I turned my head three different times because I thought maybe my eyes were fooling me. But every time I turned my head back, there he was, Glenny Lankford, matriarch of the Sutton Farmhouse. Join us tonight for part one of our series on the Kelly Hopkinsville encounter. On August 21st, 1955, family and friends were gathered at the Sutton Farmhouse in unincorporated Kelly, Kentucky, about seven miles north of Hopkinsville, or Hoptown as the locals called it back then. Eleven people, eight adults and three children, were at the house when one of them saw a bright light streaking overhead. It disappeared below a tree line about 300 feet behind the farmhouse and eventually appeared to land in a gully that was below the ground level of the home. Billy Ray Taylor, who saw the light while he was at the well getting water, sighted it around 7 p.m. It wasn't dark by any means. The sun wouldn't set for another hour, and total darkness, or astronomical twilight, would not fall for two hours. About an hour after the sighting, around 8 p.m., one of the dogs at the farm started barking like crazy. Billy and Lucky Sutton, the 25-year-old grandson of the deceased patriarch of the house, grabbed a 22 rifle and a shotgun, and what unfolded for the next three hours is the stuff Astonishing Legends is made of. An army of little men approached the farmhouse. They were roughly three feet tall, with large heads, glowing yellow eyes set far apart, giant ears, long arms, and hands that had talons on them. They were impervious to bullets, and one even grabbed Billy Ray Taylor by the hair during the incursion. One of the men went through four boxes of 22 caliber ammunition throughout the siege. The goblins floated above the ground rather than walking, and at 11 p.m., the family was able to make their escape in two separate cars, racing about 10 minutes south to the police station in Hopkinsville. Their story was met with enough belief that city, state, and county police, as well as military police from nearby Fort Campbell, all went out to the farm, along with a photographer from the Hopkinsville newspaper, 25 people in all. They searched the property inside and out. The family waited anxiously outside, refusing to re-enter the house until it was cleared. At about two in the morning, 
they all left, having found nothing to support or disprove the family's claims. Not more than 30 minutes later, after the authorities had all left, the little men returned and laid siege to the house again, tormenting the family for several more hours until just before sunrise. So... That happened. Yeah, the the long and short of this is (laughs) that a bunch of little green men came down, got out of a ship, toilet paper to house, and left. (laughs) (laughs) There are some comedic elements, to be sure, but it's a very interesting case. And you know, this is one of the main cases looked at by ufologists as being a great and really in-depth and involved and very significant encounter because it went on so long. Talking about cases. Hours. Yeah. And it it has a high number of witnesses. Exactly. So there's a lot of elements here which make it a seminal, I wouldn't call it a contact case, but a close encounter, certainly. By what is Hynek's scale, right? It would be a close encounter of the second kind, wouldn't Uh, it? The third, I think, yeah. When something pulls your hair, they're actually making physical contact. Yeah, Uh, we have to look. I'm sure we're getting this wrong. Rob Christopherson's going to come after us. (laughs) No, there are certain aspects that have to be met, like trace evidence has to be left, which depending on which account you read, there was some trace evidence left. So there are these criteria that have to be met that put it in different classifications. But certainly for that element alone, having a prolonged firefight interaction. Well, the aliens thankfully weren't fighting back because I'm sure they've got cosmic ray guns that would have obliterated everything in a Star Trek fashion. (laughs) But certainly the duration of the contact went on and it came back again. Yeah. And by the way, according to the scale, and this is on Wikipedia for the Hynek scale, J. Allen Hynek is one of the preeminent UFO researchers. And we've referenced this before. I think we referenced it during... Oh, several times. Yeah, yeah. a bunch of Fermi paradox way back when. Yeah. yeah. Close encounters of the third kind is a UFO encounter in which an animated creature is present, including humanoids, robots, and humans who seem to be occupants or pilots of a UFO. Now, researcher Ted Blocker, and I'm not sure I'm saying his name right, and it, we Could always be, get this pronunciation yeah. thing, and some people hate it and some people <laughs> love it. His last name is yeah. B-L-O-E-C-H-E-R. Yeah. I don't think it's Bloker. Could I be Blocher, could be Bloker. Anyway, Ted proposes six subtypes for the close encounters of the third kind in Hynek's scale. A, an entity is observed only inside the UFO. B, it is observed inside and outside the UFO. C, it is observed near a UFO, but not going in or out. D, an entity is observed. No UFOs are seen by the observer, but UFO activity has been reported in the area at about the same time. E, an entity is observed, but no UFOs are seen and no UFO activity has been reported. And then F, no entity or UFOs are observed, but the subject experiences some kind of intelligent communication. Now, oddly, I don't think this one is on this scale of subtypes because... For a close encounter of the third kind. Yeah, these are subsets of the third kind. Billy Ray, who was out by the well, saw what he thought was a UFO. That's the first kind. Yes. just a plain old sighting. And then the whole family saw these aliens, but they did not see them and the UFO at the same time. And they didn't go to check where the UFO supposedly landed until the next morning. Right. Which was 300 feet away way in a gully that was 30 feet below the ground level that the house was built on. Right. So that's something to think about there. Before we get too much further, I want to talk about two things. One is who exactly was at the farmhouse that night, and the other is the startling coincidence about the date that this took place. Oh, yes. Let's talk about the date first, actually. The date, August 21st, 1955. That's a significant date because on August 21st of 2017... Hopkinsville will be one of the primary places to observe the pending solar eclipse. The total eclipse, right in the path. Yeah, so much in the path 
it's one of the few spots in the country that will get something like 98 or 99% totality of eclipse. Wow. So according to this article, which Tess dug up for us from the Leaf Chronicle, which is based in Tennessee, about 30 minutes away from Hopkinsville, Hopkinsville will receive two minutes and 40 seconds of totality or total obstruction of the sun by the moon starting at 1.24 p.m. that day. This also coincides with the Kelly Greenman Festival, which happens every year on August 21st to commemorate this attack or this siege. And I would like to let you know that to help bring attention to the Little Green Man Days Festival, one of the festival goers in the area is going to be able to take home a 2007 Mitsubishi... Eclipse, Eclipse. <laughs> <laughs> which from is the, pretty brilliant. From the and, local, you got to see these pictures. We're going to have yeah. a link to this article. It's got a couple of green aliens in it, and we're going to talk about the whole green thing because it's actually a misnomer. Oh, there's plenty of misnomers with this one. It's truly fascinating, and that place, that spot, is going to be the spot. That's going to be the bright spot. If yeah. you were a kid with a magnifying glass, burning ants on the sidewalk, <laughs> Hopkinsville <laughs> is the spot for the eclipse, right, the right. inverse of that. Have you ever experienced one? Being burned by a magnifying glass? No, yes. Yeah, by a giant <laughs> sun one. No, the, an eclipse. Have you ever? Uh, yes, I one? have actually. One of the more recent ones was just a few years ago. I actually was at the Grand Canyon for I was there too. Oh yeah, we were together. That's right. Well, well then that's why would right. you ask me if I experienced it? No, no, you were I, standing right there, nitwit. Yeah, I know, but that, <laughs> that See, wasn't I can't a remember, total one. But my wife gets so mad because I cannot remember yeah. what people are with me. I can yeah. remember an event, but right. I can't remember. Well, like she remembers one of our first dates, which was the groundbreaking movie Ricochet. <laughs> Oh, dear. <laughs> and she'll remember yeah. what we were wearing and the weather and everything. And then, yeah. like, I know that I was there with her, but only because we've talked about it so much. Of course. Well, it was our first date. Right. Uh, well, and well, also, I'm, my yeah. college roommate came along. Well, How's that? <laughs> Thanks, Phil. <laughs> That's right. Yes, hello, Phil. Well, first, I have no emotional connection, unlike your wife to it, so I don't really get upset. <laughs> but I do remember it. My point being is that we were in the Grand Canyon. Yes. We're at the rim of it. Friends. I know there were other people. Yes. There Who was with yeah, us? Exactly. <laughs> One of them is Mr. Junebug in the Ear, That's Jerry. Right. My good buddy, Jerry. It was cool. It got dim, but not that dim. No. So when I was a kid, this would probably be uh, late 70s, early 80s, we had a pretty good one. It's weird. Well, one, it stopped me from getting sacrificed on top of the uh, Aztec pyramid. Yes. Two, when I was in the medieval times there, it uh, I predicted it, and so they kept me from getting executed. Joking, of course. But yes. the point here is that Hopkinsville will be right in the path, and when you are that centered on it, it's very dramatic. So you can see why people thought there was some kind of a spiritual connection to it. Now, this being pretty much on the anniversary, does that mean we may see another visitation? Just by the way, real quickly, that Grand Canyon trip that we yeah. were there for that eclipse, that was May 20th, 2012. Okay. I believe it was that long ago. Yeah, well, 2012 had its own significance, but yes. I'm not joking here. People will place a lot of significance with this encounter happening in 1955 on Sunday night, August 21st. With this eclipse happening now. In fact, actually, if you check it out on the internets, the interwebs, you'll see a lot of buzz about it. Don't say interwebs anymore. (laughs) I I know, I'm just being a... your old man joke. What? You put the in front of it. Like, uh, I was looking at... I was looking at the VCR. Yeah, the interwebs was down and I was looking at my programs. Well, you don't have to be that old. They used to call it the Facebook. Yeah. Okay, the point is... 
there's a lot of buzz about this because there is a lot of significance being placed on this pinnacle encounter, this incident, for the same reasons we just mentioned. And one, the duration of the encounter. Usually these things don't go on for hours and hours and they leave and then they come back again. So that's really significant. Two, the number of witnesses during the incident where this happened and also the amount of interaction. I mean, yeah. yes, obviously some people have claimed to have been abducted and certainly that's, you know, getting probed. That's a lot more interaction. Yeah. Interaction than, most, than nobody wants <laughs> that interaction. Nobody, in this case, that's unusual for that. So in tying this in with the eclipse, who knows? We'll wait and see. By the time you actually hear this podcast, if it ever gets done, we're a little late coming out this week, but yeah. who knows? Well, I'm excited to look forward to it. Now, of course, I don't ever expect anything happening in my lifetime or to me that's on a grand, weird scale like that, but you never know. No, but this is really significant, right. too. And, and I can tell you, by the way, Hopkinsville is booked up. All the hotels are sold out. Yes, Everybody is you. going there. Yeah. It's, it's going to be a mecca. Yeah. Let's talk just quickly before we get too much further. Right. I do want to talk about the people that were in the farmhouse. So we have some context going yes. forward. It was a family and various relations associated with the family and some family friends. I'm going to list them off here from one of the reports that we're going to be referencing tonight. It's called Close Encounter at Kelly. And it was written by Isabel Davis and the aforementioned Ted Blocker. Or Blocher. Blocher is definitely not how you say this <laughs> name. And was published with the cooperation or for the Center for UFO Studies in 1978, which is J. Allen Hynek's organization that he used to run before he passed away. Yeah, Isabel Davis actually went and interviewed as best she could. And we'll talk about the difficulty she had with this because it, it does tie into the veracity of the story. But she, as best she could, went to interview the people within a year's time, you know, as soon as possible. Because about 10 was, months later. Yeah, I yeah, ex exactly. Yeah. But she actually went there, hung out for about a week, I think, trying to interview everybody that she could with varying degrees of success. But if you really want to know what happened during this, she's got great diagrams, has the whole map of the house drawn out, will tell you what happened when and where. And it's not a very complicated story. You just heard it. So when people are saying, well, I don't get it, like, well, there's well, more that's all there it, is. Though. There's more details, there is which more, we're going to get to here. Exactly. There are more details. But as far as the nuts and bolts of the story, you just heard it. Yeah. And that, that's the encounter. But this PDF form of this book is great because, again, it's the best interviewed source. Yeah, it's out of print. It is um, out of the print, but, but it's... But Tess found it somehow. We'll have a link to it, presuming I got to check and make sure we can right. link to it legally. Right. If we can, we'll post the link with our show notes. Exactly. If you really want to know the details of the case, I think you start here. Yeah. And then there are, of course, a lot of contemporary at the time, newspaper accounts, and those will change. We're going to talk about that. But let's get to know the people that were there at the farmhouse on that fateful Sunday night. Well, we have the matriarch of the family who we quoted at the top of the show, Mrs. Glenny Lankford, who was the widow of the patriarch, Oscar Lankford, who was her second husband. She was the oldest person in the house at the age of 50, which in my mind, and it might be because I'm relatively close to that age, is not <laughs> that old. She was the big boss of the family, and she was there in the house. We also had Elmer Sutton, otherwise known as Lucky. The one newspaper account at the time calls him Cecil, quote, Lucky, unquote, Sutton. So we'll try and find and point out these discrepancies between these somewhat verifiable and trusted sources, yes. which makes the case interesting as well. That's right. And the names in this report have been corroborated by several other sources. So we're trusting this. But what Forrest is saying, it's like something that we find frequently when we do our stories. A lot of the information in print, the journalism side of things, yeah. 
is inaccurate, like wildly inaccurate. Oh, and yeah. Yeah. so that's one of the things that has been printed was that this guy's name was Cecil Sutton, but his name was Elmer Sutton. His nickname was Lucky, and that was actually tattooed on his hand. Yeah. And he was a carny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> well, we're going to talk about that in a minute. But no, was, there's, a, there's nothing unscrupulous about this guy. That's one no. of the things. Uh, and by the way, I have a tattoo on my hand. Like, I call it my prison tattoo. It's right oh, yeah, that's, between that's my, right. Uh, right above in that web between your thumb and your pointer finger. So I, I want to make it clear that I'm yeah. not marginalizing anyone here because no, no, they have the tattooed hands. Yeah, exactly. He, although he's never worked as a carny, as, as far as I, I have know. not. So Elmer was 25. He was Miss Lankford's son by her first husband, Tillman Sutton. Then we have Vera Sutton, who was Elmer or Lucky Sutton's wife. She was 29. Robin the Cradle, I guess, because she married Elmer, who was Oh, there's another younger one. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I know. And then there's J.C., John Charlie Sutton, who was 21. That was Mrs. Lankford's son by her first husband, Aline Sutton, 27, his wife. Then we have Lonnie Lankford, the child, who was 12, Charlton Lankford, 10, and Mary Lankford, 7. They were all Mrs. Langford's children by Oscar Langford, her second husband, who, as we mentioned, was deceased. Right. In addition to these guys, there was a young man there named Billy Ray Taylor, who was 21. He was a friend of Lucky Sutton's. Right. Yeah, and they worked together. So they're, they're and his the wife same age. was Yes, and his wife was 18. Right. June okay. Taylor. Mm-hmm. Then we also have O.P. Baker, who was 30 or 35, according to this report. They're not really sure. But he was the brother of Aline Sutton. Right. Now, O.P. actually lived in Hopkinsville, but he often stayed overnight at the farmhouse because there was somebody who would pick him up and take him to work, and that was an easier location for that person. Right. So there's a lot of people, two families, essentially, staying at this farmhouse. Yes. And the permanent residents of the farm, according to the report, were Mrs. Langford, the J.C. Suttons, and the three children. But the Taylors and the Elmer Suttons had been staying there for several months, and those two couples are the ones that have been traveling with a carnival. Right. So they were in between work. They're itinerant workers, and so they're hanging out there while uh, they're looking for another carnival to come through or to to join up on. Right. And now something that's important to talk about here, I guess, with regard to Billy Ray, who was the original eyewitness to the craft. Yeah. Billy Ray is considered by not only this report, but a lot of other sources to be the least credible witness present, (laughs) including his own family. Well, look, he's kind of a character. He's one of those types who, if they thought this was a practical joke, he'd be the guy pulling their legs. This is not to say they thought he was a, of a criminal nature, and that is not an association with any carnival workers at all. Yeah. That's another theme with this story is that there's a lot of low-hanging fruit here for people to make fun of, of these folks. And that's the problem that I have with people who do. Yeah. Just the attitudes and the subconscious prejudices people have about rural folk, farm families, and carnival workers, and, and people you think might be on the fringes. And Again, not we're educated. describing large portions of my own family, and I want to make my, that absolutely yeah. clear, because yeah. we've had a few people write in about some of the observations we've made about that. I want to be clear that I come from country folk. I come from people in yeah. the low country of North Carolina down at the beach. My great-grandfather ran away with a circus. <laughs> we're talking about our own people here, and anyone who perceives any jokes that we make about them, we get to make them because I am them. <laughs> well, it's not... <laughs> <laughs> Not only, we've said this before, I have personally, in that that is a huge pet peeve of mine, people's preset notions of what suburban and even rural folk are supposed to be and what they may or may not know. Yeah. And we've talked about this in, in the Jersey Devil that we had passed, that, well, they don't know what they saw. And my big thing, I'm going to put it out in my own darn mug, is don't tell me what I saw. These people are much more close to their environment than a lot of uh, the most city folks and your coastal city folks. 
And so as we go along here, keep that in mind is that, yeah, even at the time, people in Hopkinsville were like, well, these guys are living on the edge of town here. They're on a farm. And yes, it was a very rudimentary farm. There was no running water, as far as I know. The, the there water, was not. There was yeah. no running water in the house. It had an outhouse in the and back. An outhouse. And they, they did have electricity. There was, there was yes. electrical lights and there was a small refrigerator. But it was like a lot of places back then. They didn't have the comforts that you come to expect now, even with a lot of farmhouses. But when we say back then, though, you know, traditionally when we say that on this show, we're talking about the early 1900s. This was the mid-50s. Yeah, and, but, but still, oh, but you're still family, coming. Yeah, exactly. They, they didn't have a lot of money. Yeah, it was, a, it was uh, more of a subsidiary farm, only I think three or four acres where they grew tobacco, right. which is one of the crops uh, grown in the area, and a little bit of crops- uh, For themselves. Exactly. Yeah. So, so yeah. right, just vegetables for themselves. Yeah. And so a lot of America at this time, people don't realize that, is just right after World War II, that was a lot of how the middle part of America lived. It's certainly, again, as we said, that's a large part of my, our family. We had farmers in our family. And and, uh, and where was that? Uh, Southern Idaho. Oh. Yeah, so, so Ooh, uh, Buell, well, that was a different family, oh, okay. but I've certainly okay. visited them. And they used to grow corn for uh, Del Monte and, and Green Giant. Oh, ho, ho. Exactly. So what I can tell you about the character of those people that we've also talked about in other episodes is that there is very little room for monkey shines and and goofing off. These are serious people. Now, they do love to have fun. Certainly my family is like that. They love to, uh, not huge practical jokes, but they love to have a good laugh, but not about this kind of stuff. You just came back from a little family vacation, didn't you? I did. It was pretty awesome. We went back east for a few days just to get out of town, visit some relatives, and the place we were staying at had a pool, so that was nice. We just sat back, relaxed. I mean, we still had to work on the show, but it was really great just doing it somewhere else. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, and I'm sure you didn't miss the L.A. traffic. And you also didn't have to miss your Blue Apron meals. Well, that's another great thing about how flexible a Blue Apron subscription is. Not only can you switch up what day of the week you'd like your deliveries, but if you change your preferences far enough in advance on the website, you can have your Blue Apron meals delivered to the address you're going to be at. Chances are, if you can get regular mail and shipping company deliveries to your vacation spot, you can probably get your Blue Apron meals delivered there too. Yeah, it's great to be able to have home-cooked meals made with the freshest ingredients delivered right to your door, even when you're on vacation. See, that way, you don't really have to do a lot of local grocery store shopping if you don't want to. You'll just have to get a bottle of olive oil and some salt and pepper if you want, and Blue Apron will ship you everything else you'll need for dinner. And of course, you'll have to pick up those all-aboard vacation beverages, but you won't be leaving behind a bunch of leftover wasted food. And sometimes if you're vacationing in a small town, there might not be a whole lot of restaurants to choose from, or you can't even find the local grocery store. However, if you do want to eat out every meal and not have to bother with the cooking, you can also just put your Blue Apron deliveries on hold for however long you're going to be out of town. You know, the flexibility, the variety, the ease and affordability are all just some of the reasons Blue Apron is the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country. Go check out all the options you have along with this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash astonishing. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash astonishing. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Forrest and Scott, thank you for supporting their sponsors. I'm Christy. Now back to the show. 
All right, so let's get into a little more detail. And here's one of the things about this story. There really were a lot of things that happened. And one of the things about the report that we were referring to, Close Encounter at Kelly and Others of 1955, that's the one by Isabel Davis and Ted Blocker. Right. I'm going to say Blocker. Yes. For the Center for UFO Studies, which was published in 1978. That one has a lot of, as you said, a lot of diagrams in it that make things really clear. And it mentions a lot of other sightings, but about the first 100 pages of it is dedicated to the Kelly Hopkinsville encounter. Yeah, it really goes through and details everything. That's why we said uh, it's a probably the best source maybe about this encounter. I tend to trust it just the way it's, you know, been researched. Yeah, and, and even though they both, they collaborated on that, I'm pretty sure that the bulk of what was written in this particular report was done by Isabel Davis. She actually went there yes. and talked to the people as best she could, and, and we'll get into that because at this point, even a few months, uh, um, it was know, 10 months later, I almost believe, a year. Yeah, my it understanding. Was, it was right, not quite a year, but at this point, they were done talking about this. Well, they were reluctant to talk to people, and she found even when she went to see Glenny, the matriarch at this point, she reluctantly agreed to talk to her. She was pretty nonplussed about it, yeah. but she did, and she sat down and spoke with her, and she's real matter-of-fact. We're going to talk about her more throughout this episode and, and the next part of this series. But Absolutely, because I, I really believe that character has a lot to do with this story, as I place a lot of value in people's character in any of these types of stories. And a lot of people don't. I know a lot of skeptics and debunkers will say like, well, that's impossible. So this guy must be a liar. Well, and that's what I love about this particular story. And and we come back to this a few times in terms of themes on our show. But this story is a, you said it was a seminal story in general, which it is in the UFO community. Right. It's also kind of a seminal story for debunkers. They hold it up, they put it up on the pedestal as the prime example of what happens when you embrace pseudoscience and ignore what they consider to be facts. Yeah, for our conclusions, we're going to really take a deep dive, drill down all that kind of stuff into that and really pick that apart, actually, and examine it very closely because I think, I agree, this is a prime example of a lot of these elements of ufology and reportage of encounters and the resulting stuff that's written about it, fringe and mainstream. So it's good from that standpoint, but I think as we go through here and and talk about the different elements as this thing unfolds, there's a lot of confusion. I think that we have to make that clear. The other thing that we're going to draw from that I thought was kind of important, and uh, we'll have a a link to that, and I I believe Google newspapers, and yet you can actually see a scan of the newspaper at the time, comes from the local newspaper, the closest one, the Kentucky New Era newspaper out of Hopkinsville. Yes. And what I love about this is that it's a contemporary of the time, like the next day close in relation to the event. Yeah, August 22nd, 1955, this article was published. Now, and this paper, the Kentucky New Era, went on to be known for making a lot of fun of the Sutton family and the associated members. Yes, But that's not happening yet in this first piece. Exactly. And that's why I find it so interesting. They became known as, you know, the newspaper of the region that was kind of poking fun. But I think for very specific journalistic reasons, which we see continuing to this day. But at this point, this article comes out in the Monday afternoon edition. The next day, they had sent a reporter out and a photographer to kind of document this thing. Because look, there's not a ton of excitement going on in the Hopkinsville area. So this was big news. As we'll see here, a lot of people showed up to this thing to check out what was going on. And the tone of this article, I think, is very fair. I think it's very unbiased at least in this first go-around, 
Although, we'll, as we'll see here, we're going to go along and I'll, I'll try and remember and point out things that are conflicting, some of the reporting and some of the facts of the case as they saw. So as we go along, I'll mention which source we're drawing from. And just what's interesting is they're also trying to sort out, along with the authorities, the confusing aspects of this case. Yes. Okay, so the first part of this story in the article is that they're going to tell you the very nuts and bolts of the story in that a spaceship, and at this point they just put a hyphen in there between space and ship because this is 1955. Yeah. There's a lot of 50 sci-fi that's going on. It's not as common, certainly, as, as it is now. So this article reports that 12 to 15 little men, you won't see any mention of green men here, just strange little men landed in the Kelly community early last night and battled occupants of a farmhouse. And then more than a dozen state, county, and city officers from Hopkins and Christian counties went to investigate the scene between 11 p.m. and midnight. And they stayed past 2 a.m. and they found nothing either to prove or disprove an attack. Now, the farmhouse was located on Old Madisonville Road, about eight miles north of Hopkinsville, and some people say seven miles. So you have to realize it's a neighborhood. It's an unincorporated suburb, I guess, if you want to say, of Hopkinsville, but it's farmland. Yeah, it was about 100 or 115 families on farms out that way. Right, right, exactly. So this is all kind of spread out. Certainly they know whose property is owned by whom, But it's not plotted out as it is now if you take a look at it on Google Aerial Maps. It's going to be very just wide open. Yeah, we have some great pictures, by the way, which I want to thank David Britton for sending us. They are just amazing. He recently went there with his girlfriend and did their own investigation. And he sent a bunch of pictures, (laughs) which we have on the website. And he also included a snapshot from Google Earth where you can look down and see exactly where the Sutton farmhouse used to stand. There's a, right. there's a nice newer house now just north of it, but it's, it's pretty obvious where the footprint was. And when you look at the report and you see the floor plan of the house and the layout of how it stood there, there were two maple trees in the back, which is where the well was. And those two trees are still there. So you can see where the well was and, ah. and about where Billy Ray would have been standing when whatever flew over him flew over him. And just so people know, this will come up later, there's a possibility that it was a meteor. There were other sightings and including one at a restaurant just up the road from Kelly, about the time that Billy Ray said he saw something. Right, right. And and this is important, but if he comes in the house, and we told you about Billy Ray, he's kind of a little, he loves attention, and he's prone to exaggeration. (laughs) Right. When he came in and said, oh, I saw a UFO or whatever, his own family was probably, all right, great, you know, with the green beans are ready. (laughs) But that actual sighting of whatever flew over their house was corroborated by people unrelated to the family up the road at a restaurant. So I just wanted to throw that in really. Right. And to kind of set the stage, even globally, as you would read in Close Encounter at Kelly and others of 1955, that uh, document, there was a lot going on since you could say between Roswell, 1947, and before that, a lot of stuff was happening in the early to mid 50s almost like a global flap, an international flap. And there's a lot of similarities to these stories along with this one. But a lot of strange variances about what kind of people were seen and what type of craft, although it generally fits a similar paradigm to the 50s encounters. One thing I wanted to point out here before we get into the specifics of uh, that evening is that I found it very interesting in reading this Close Encounter at Kelly PDF that ufologists and people who study this kind of phenomena, there's a big difference between a plain old sighting of a disc or a craft in the sky or even something landing and a story 
an encounter that is told where there are beings described. Yes. Right. Two different areas. And within that community at the time, the plain old sighting is a lot more believable to these people who study this than when you have a description of strange little men that come out of this craft or appear in conjunction with the craft. Because as I had read this, what was interesting is that some of these stories are so way out there in the descriptions of these kind of beings. It's all over the place. Some with big heads, some are huge, some are tiny. That's a big theme. A lot of them are very tiny, but they're hairy. <laughs> some are are massive and they're maybe even Bigfoot size. Wait, are you talking about the Kelly? No, no, no I'm talking about globally. Yes, globally. Yes, yes, globally. Yes, I'm sorry. A lot okay, of these... I want to make sure you weren't misspeaking there because they were fairly consistent. I, do, I want to make that point as we go along here is that this is not just an isolated incident. It is a major one for 1955 for the United States. Yes. But these things have been seen in an isolated, in the sky kind of thing. In fact, some of the people connected with this case had the year previously seen a UFO and not just one single person, people pulled over by the side of the road. Well, yeah, and I don't know if you're talking about the same exact case, but the sheriff, yes, the exactly. local sheriff. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. That was actually not one year, but that was 52, I believe. So well, I think it was three years, right? Right. But and, there was another one a year before, which was the uh, the deputy maybe or somebody de else. The city police desk sergeant. The desk sergeant. He had seen something the summer previously. So... Yeah, he saw something the summer previously, right. and then the sheriff who investigated the case, who that night went out to the farmhouse, he himself in 1955 had seen a bright object hovering for 30 to 40 minutes before taking off at a high rate of speed. So there's an example of my favorite thing, non-ballistic <laughs> motion. Non because if, if it's yeah. a balloon or a flare or yeah. a... Fort Campbell is nearby. It's a paratrooper training base. Right. Very close by. Right. I'm surprised nobody said flares yet. But yeah. But jets dropping flares was not a big thing at that point. No, and also flares, they do look like they're floating. They're very slow to descend because yeah. they have little parachutes well, there, there on them or whatever. there are parachute flares, yes. But they don't take off at a high rate of speed. No. They generally just burn out. And... Whatever it was that the sheriff saw in 1952, he estimated that 75 to 100 other eyewitnesses saw as well. So he's going into the situation with an air of belief. Exactly. And right. one of the other things they indicated in the report, too, was that the sheriff's mother was a full-blooded Shoshone Native American, which yeah. meant that not only did, was he open-minded to the idea of strange craft or UFOs, he also probably had been exposed to prejudice. And that's something to keep an eye on here because there is a good chance that a lot of people, especially city folk, even from Hopkinsville, but also people who investigated this case all the way from New York by phone or whatever, they probably were passing judgment on this poor rural family at this farmhouse, probably thinking of them as country bumpkins or whatever. Yeah, of course. And, and of course, the question comes up, there was the whole thing about, oh, they were all drunk on moonshine or drinking or whatever. And, right. and that's something that we will address too. Right. Uh, I, I did want to make it clear just really quickly that the matriarch of the house, Glenny, forbid spirits in the house. They're, yeah, they're, strong they did, spirits. Yeah, strong spirits. Yeah. They found some beer cans, but not a significant number. No one thought that they were drinking, but there were multiple reports of like, oh, well, these aliens all came out of a bottle. And it right. just, it, there was no evidence to support that. So I want to be clear about that. Exactly. So you're talking about Chief Russell Greenwell. Yes. Uh, the chief of police for Hopkinsville. Yes. Basically, we have several levels of law enforcement and authorities here from the local city, the state level, state troopers, the county sheriffs from two different counties. Uh, deputy sheriffs anyway. So there's a lot of people on the scene now. As, and the military police from right, Fort Campbell. It, yeah, there's two MPs from Fort Campbell that showed up because after this happened, after this incident, this attack, this battle as it was described happened, 
They were so freaked out and frightened, they all jumped into two cars, one owned by the Sutton family, I think that was uh, Lucky's car, and the other one owned by Billy Ray Taylor that had Pennsylvania plates. And they drove quickly over to the Hopkinsville police station where they reported this tale, and it was kind of taken seriously. And when, well, and here's one of the reasons it was. I mean, first of all, again, there was no evidence that they were drunk or had been drinking. Right. I want to make that clear. And then the other thing that's really interesting is these are hardworking farm people. Exactly, they, yeah. Not a whole lot of things that scare them. They got a house full of guns. They aren't going to flee their house and go to the police department unless— the guns are of no use to them. <laughs> well, that's something, something to consider. Yeah, no, know? no. This is, uh, again— Or they're I, out I think, of ammo. Which, right. That, you know. <laughs> because what happened was that as this was going on, as they claimed for nearly four hours, that they saw a break in the action where I think these things are at bay. We can make a break for it. They went to go get help, and that's what they told— the chief of police, we need help with this. It's such a filmic moment. I can just see the family like busting out of the house, screen door bangs open, right. like, running out and trying to get in the car, sliding across the hoods, trying to uh, leave yeah. the dust, you know, right. just imagine the fear that they had. Too. Oh, absolutely. No, and, and that's- they got the children to protect, three very young kids. And I'm telling you right now, the instincts, that's a whole different ball game there if you're actually worried about your safety, if you have, you know, little kids there to protect. Exactly. So as they went and told their story to the police, police, look, any police officer in any capacity will tell you they get lied to so often that they got a sixth sense about it. And sometimes they're wrong. Sometimes their judgments are wrong and, and the person hasn't done what they said. That certainly can be debated. But you get this innate sense of when somebody at least is not faking extreme excitement and terror and being scared that at least they should go check this out and not and reserve judgment. Again, it wasn't two carloads full of hillbillies pulling up who were just been drinking. They can smell it on them, and they don't in this case. The report said that there was no indication of any alcohol being a factor in this case. So, And to that end, one of these guys that rode with the family members back to the farm was someone who had medical experience. And he noticed that Billy Ray Taylor was super flushed. Yeah. And excited. And I want to read this quote from the report. This investigator not only noticed that Taylor was pale and almost hysterical, but observed the rapid pulse beat in his neck and timed it. The rate was 140 per minute, twice normal. The skeptic who mentioned this fact was still impressed by it. Quote, maybe the boy could pretend to be frightened in some ways, but I don't know how he could make his heart beat twice as fast as usual, end quote. Yeah. So that's what's going on with Billy Ray there. There's clearly a fear, and it might even have been elevated by the fact that they were returning. Right. So as they had pulled up, there's some conflicting names and details of this story. But again, I think this first article is very even in that they're not weighing in with judgment or ridicule just yet. So they're kind of reporting it, but there's so much confusion going on that this reporter, whoever wrote the story, and there's no byline, may not have gotten everything correct. And as it was reported in this article, even the police couldn't really make sense of like, okay, how many people are at the farmhouse? What exactly happened? So really the two spokesmen for the whole group, Lucky Sutton and Billy Ray Taylor are the two spokesmen for the group that are kind of relaying this story. But there are four city police officers that they tell this to and then actually get in a motorcade and go check this out. And it's Chief Russell Greenwell, as we said, a T.C. Greenwell, Doris Francis, or Francis Doris, and a Gray Salter. And they drove to the scene to go see about these little men. Now, they're on the police radios. 
and they make contact with Kentucky State Troopers R.N. Ferguson Jr. and G.W. Riley and Deputy Sheriff George Batts. And they also join in this motorcade uh, to the farmhouse to go check this out. Also overhearing on the radio and joining are four MPs, as reported in this article. I think there might have been just two from nearby Fort Campbell. So again, the number of people showing up to this thing, it's a lot, but we don't even have an exact number, really. No, because you hear, like at one point you hear in this report, I think they said they had 25 people came out to search the farm. Yeah. But on the other hand, this one says over a dozen. However, if you then, if you say, oh, well, there was 12 people that came out, but then there were 11 witnesses who were there. If all of them went, then you've got 23 people. So it's, who knows? So exactly. But my point or my thinking on this is that that's not really that important. We do know that the chief of police and some deputy sheriffs from two different counties, military MPs show up. So these are real accountable people. It's not just like, well, maybe there was an officer, but we don't know his name. It's not a big house. This is a small one-story house. And in addition to that, it's not a huge lot either. It's only about a three-acre lot, although where the craft supposedly crashed was past a fence on a neighboring property. And they never got that far. Right, right, exactly. And there's a question to that as to whether they were afraid or not. And we have to tell the story about the cat. Yeah, I'm going to get to what actually happens. So all these first responders, when they first show up here, the scene is deserted. The two cars with the two families in them, and the three kids and the five to eight adults, however many there were of them, refused to go to the scene of their own house until the authorities had checked it out. That's how scared they were. And so they hang back. So the officers reported that they didn't find any tracks or footprints of these little men, and they didn't find any marks left behind of a craft landing out behind the house either. Now, they did find a hole in the screen at the window where the occupants had said that a shot had been fired at one of the strange little men. So here's basically a recap of the story as reported that was told to both Chief Greenwell and Deputy Sheriff Batts. This is a story that they said that they got basically from the group in piecemeal. And and again, realize that these people are very excited and not in a fun way, very scared. So I imagine people are just kind of like blurting out details, peppering them, but they basically get Billy Ray and Lucky to like, okay, just tell them, you guys, just, just tell me what happened. Right. And they were the two primary folks that were engaged with these creatures. Yeah. Everybody, you talk about wives and, and there's one wife who didn't, she didn't even want to look. She so refused she, to look. There were technically, yeah. there were 10 eyewitnesses. Right. Right. Yeah. And the kids. So this is the story as reported from the newspaper article. And as, as we go along here, we'll kind of add details from the other book. So at about 7 p.m., one of the men, as we said, Taylor, Billy Ray, goes out to get a bucket of water. Now, he says he saw what looked like a flying saucer come over the trees and land in a field at that low depression in the gully there. And it's about a city block behind the house. And I believe in the depression, it disappears. Yeah, which you can't really see. Yeah, it was about 300 feet away, but also the depression was below a tree line. Right, right. So, yeah. The first thing that people want to say, even his own family, when he came back inside the house with a bucket of water, and again, they had to draw water from the well there. He said, like, I saw a flying saucer. And they're like, come on, man. Stop pulling our legs. Right. And they had a lively discussion about that. And again, he's not a criminal type, and he's not generally a liar, but I think he's a guy that likes to joke around and have fun. So, like, oh, come on, you're pulling our legs. Right, sky is falling. Yeah, and if you did see anything, you saw a meteor. 
which is in this aftermath. And they even talked about that. Yeah, exactly. They, yeah. they tried to pull this apart. It's like, you saw a meteor. Well, he said, if it landed, there was no explosion. I didn't hear anything. But what he did describe was a semi-hissing sound accompanying this craft. So that's an interesting little element of the story. He also said that it had a trail of rainbow-like colors. Exactly. Its exhaust had colors of the whole rainbow coming out of it. So that's yeah. interesting. But Maybe it was the more you know star. That's an interesting point here. We're talking about characters that they didn't really believe them at first because most people don't. That's pretty unusual. And as Scott said, these are hardworking farm folks and uh, they're good-natured, but there's no time for any tomfoolery. So they discussed that and it was kind of forgotten about. I was like, well, I guess these people aren't going to believe me anyway. About an hour later, around 8 o'clock, around 8 o'clock, as far as we know, one of the dogs starts barking like crazy. And we always do this. We always, the ARC, I should say, by the way, the ARC is just, I know I always say it, but they've been outstanding on this. We have oh, yeah. a lot of uh, new members working in the uh, green room that we have there for new folks. And everyone has just been doing a really outstanding job. So I just want to say thank you to everybody in the Astonishing Research Corps, yet again, for everything you've done, and especially to uh, Tess Feifel as well. For managing it all. So in Shades of Snowball, I don't know how many people remember <laughs> Snowball. <laughs> From the Delphus Ring. From the Delphus Ring, uh, one of uh, Marie Mayhew's favorite dogs of all of our stories. Snowball, who ran away when the UFO came, which turned out to be a wise decision considering what happened to the three dogs that were turned into puddles of goo on the Skinwalker Ranch. Exactly. The three blue healers. And so, Marie, if you think about it, Who's the dummy now? This dog had its tail between its legs, as they said, and he crawled under the house and they would not see him until the next day. Yeah. He and Snowball, still alive. Yes. The other dogs... Well, not right this No, minute, of course but, not. But, but they after the end... They survived this incident. incident, and uh, the other three dogs, who couldn't help their instinct, went tearing after them, ended up as three black, greasy spots in the grass. At so, Skinwalker, yeah. At Skinwalker I, Ranch. Dude... What did I tell you about eating while we're on the mic? <laughs> I can't help it. That's it. Fruit bars are delicious. Besides, we have a few minutes, and my rambling tangents require a lot of energy. I like that shit because they kind of have a dried fruit taste, but they've made them a lot more moist than regular old dried fruit, so they're soft, and you get a lot more of that wholesome fruit flavor. All right, give me one. Here, have a blueberry apple. Excellent. Thank you. What happened to that box you just ordered? Your kid eat them already? Well, actually, the whole family's been plowing through them, but I've been putting That's It bars wherever my son might need a snack. In his lunchbox, his backpack, his karate gym bag, the glove box. It's one sweet snack that he really likes, and one I feel good about giving him, because it's just fruit and more fruit. That's it. Yeah, I always have a few in my computer bag and my car's center console, because it's a perfect healthy snack for when you're on the go. They're made with real non-GMO fruit. They're portion controlled with no added sugar or preservatives. So they're especially good for people with special diets or at any age. The fruit bars come in nine different flavors. So there's bound to be something everyone in your family is going to love. And if you know someone who's vegan or on a raw diet, be sure and tell them about That's It because they're going to thank you for it. You may have seen That's It fruit bars at Whole Foods, CVS, and your local Starbucks. But now That's It is offering Astonishing Legends listeners an amazing deal. Go to That's that's it, fruit.com. Enter the code LEGENDS at checkout to save 10% off your order. Do what we did so you can get these bars sent right to you. You're going to love them. Again, go to thatsitfruit.com and enter the code LEGENDS at checkout to save 10% off your order. Your taste buds and your body will thank you. Hi, I'm Brad Middleton. If you see my girlfriend and I on a road trip, then we're listening to Astonishing Legends. Now let's get back to the show. 
One of the things that I I also want to point out is that some of these articles, including this PDF that we're referring to, they described it as a full moon that night, or the PDF doesn't, but the newspaper article does. Well, what does the PDF say about the I believe, well, they said it was a a new moon. That means there's no moon in the sky. It gets full as you go along. Right. Yeah. So it would not have been dark if all of this stuff unfolded. If he was at the well at seven o'clock and then he saw this object pass overhead, and then an hour later, the dog is barking and goes under the porch because it hears something outside, that still should have been some light because the sun didn't even set until eight o'clock. So I don't yeah, make no, that no, it's, clear. It's, it's not totally pitch black. No, the moon was a sliver at best, and it yeah. was set by 925. So it was probably already pretty low in the sky, actually, for at, at 7 or 8. Exactly. So that's the conditions. He goes back in the inside the house. The other thing is that since it's a hot night out, the windows are open, and yeah. they have screens open. And about... So suddenly, it's a Tennessee Williams play. No, that would be a hot tin roof. Yeah. <laughs> and there's no cats here. No. Just the dog. So now the dog has stopped barking. He's quiet. He ran under the house. And of course, I find it funny that uh, Lucky Sutton says, like, you know, it was some expletives here. Like, nice dog. First sight of trouble, he runs under the house. Yeah, he used the <laughs> like, S word. Yeah, you were using the S word. Like, dog. That's a good dog. He didn't even protect us. So yeah. he's in line with Marie there. Yeah. Uh, but again, still alive. Team Snowball. After that incident. So, so then I'm not sure who sees it first, but somebody claims they saw little, tiny men. I think that was Lucky. Yeah. So they're kind of aware now too, because they go out to see what the dog was barking at. And now the dog's quiet, like what the heck's going on here? So as they're kind of like looking into the darkness here, they start to see strange little men approach the house. Yes. But just, I want to make it clear at this point, just one. Exactly. Just one. And it is coming out of the darkness. And every time they see it, it always comes out of the darkness, which in the report, they surmised that rather than it necessarily trying to hide might be that it might have meant that it had an aversion to light. Just something to think about. Oh, yes, possibly. Right. But it came, it was coming out of the darkness, and it was not walking, but floating. It was kind of walking, but I think the description means it, it wasn't really making contact with the ground much. Yes. So now as you read the newspaper article, the inference there is that there's 12 to 15 these little guys that, an army of them, as you say, battling the occupants of the farmhouse, but it was kind of a one-sided battle. And I believe Ma Lankford said that there wasn't 12 or 15 of these things, only a couple that she could see. So now there's varying reports. Well, at any given moment, only one person saw two, I believe. And she got mad about all the stories that said it was 12 to 15. Exactly. In fact... Here's a quote from the uh, report, the Center for UFO Studies report. The lies they told about us said we were drinking. The things they put in the newspapers, like saying there were 12 or 15 of them. People just want to make money out of it and sell things. Yeah, exactly. So that's what she said. And by the way, she was the she's a very sober individual. And again, we're going to talk about her character as Forrest made a yeah. reference to. Her. But at the time of the of the first creature, this was one creature coming out. It's coming out of the darkness. It's sort of float walking. It's float and, walking. And on top of that, it's moving very slowly. And it has its arms up yeah. <laughs> like it's yeah. been held up outside a stagecoach. Exactly. That's the way to describe yeah. it. Is yeah. that it's I showed Scott this earlier today. Don't you? There's, no, there's a <laughs> there's a clip from the X-Files Simpsons episode where there is a glowing deranged Mr. Burns coming out of the woods that they, that they mistake for an alien. Yes. And he's like, "I bring you love." And they're like, "It's bringing love. Don't let it get away." <laughs> Break its legs. Yeah. So that's the reaction, the comic reaction of like it's trying to 
alert us. Like this thing's coming out of the darkness. Like I've got my hands up. Please don't shoot. We've monitored your transmissions from space. And uh, howdy doody says, that's what you do. You keep your hands up not to get shot. And what's the first thing they do? Well, they go and grab their guns and I don't blame them because these things also, not only do they have really large yellow glowing eyes that are neither both pointing forward or both out to the side, but as they are described as pointing <laughs> off into two different directions, sort of. Some reports say large ears, maybe large pointy bat-like ears maybe, but they have these really long arms, oversized long arms with huge hands at the end of them and talons or claws at the end of these fingers. I don't know how many fingers. I'm sure at this point they're not, they're not really counting. They're just totally freaked out. So yeah, you're like, what the heck? They run back inside the house. And of course, being farm people, they have firearms. Yeah, well, according to the report, they had four types of firearms. They had a 20-gauge single-barreled shotgun, which was relatively new. It had been bought at Montgomery Wards yeah. in Hopkinsville by Oscar Langford, the deceased patriarch. And it also was purchased with three chokes, which are accessories that you put on the muzzle of the gun to concentrate the shot pattern in different degrees according to the size of the choke. There's no record of whether or not there was a choke on it or which one. That 20-gauge was actually used by J.C. Sutton that night. He fired that shotgun through the window at the creature through the window that they saw, which we're going to talk about here in a second. Yeah. Then there was the 12-gauge shotgun, which Lucky Sutton used that night, and he used that to fire at a creature they saw on the roof, on a little overhang right over the front door. Right. And then there was a 22 rifle that Billy Ray Taylor used that evening. Yeah. And then also on site was a miniature German pistol, with a two to three inch barrel, and that weapon was never fired. Right. So, so to clarify, though, we have three of the adults at the farmhouse actually doing the shooting, right? Yes. Okay. Because the, according to the report, not a ton of shooting. The repeated shooting, I believe, was mostly related to Lucky and Billy Ray, but JC fired a shot with the 20 gauge right. through the window at one of the creatures. Right. A 12 gauge or a 20 gauge shotgun. Again, I don't know what load they had, and I'm going to guess kind of like a heavy game load, like a turkey load or whatever. If it's an owl, you're going to kill it. Right away. <laughs> it's a bird. Yeah, an owl's a bird. People shoot turkeys with this thing, which are much larger birds than owls. And so... And there's a reason we're mentioning owls here. Yes. Which is not uh, something we've, owls, we've broached yet, but that yeah. or I don't think, but... No. It is one of the stories that people will tell you, we'll just sum this up real quick right. so you can put it in the back of your mind, is that the whole family was drunk and a couple of territorial owls were attacking the house to protect a nest right. and that that's all they saw. And so we've yeah. already told you that there's no evidence that any of them were drinking, that the matriarch of the house did not allow strong spirits in the house, and that there was no reason to believe that there is an owl in the Kelly, Kentucky area that is impervious to a close-up shotgun blast. <laughs> right. And in my point blank, one yeah. of the shots was fired point exactly, blank, by the way. Exactly, right. Because in, in my conclusion, I'm going to tell you why that's more ridiculous than a story of goblins and attacking a house. It is. We should want to save some of that theory stuff for part two. No, no, yeah, we're not. We're just going to put uh, out there where we're going with this. As, ex as exactly. So right, we're at the beginning of the firefight and Billy Ray has got a 22 long rifle. Now that's a relatively small round. Actually, it's a very small round. And uh, most people, when you, your family trains you on firearms, that's what you start off with. Which you know? is what they do where you're from. 
But well, there's a lot of yeah, family like, no, firearm rural training. people. That's what. Yeah, rural. Hey, uh, you got a clue, folks. Suburban. Well, no, no. Look, I grew up in a suburban setting. We had a small, mid-sized city. But yeah, a lot of people. When you go shooting just for target practice, you know, plinking cans, you use a twenty-two. One, it's a lot cheaper than your larger caliber. So you'll see even guns being uh, chambered down so that they shoot twenty-two. And there's a reason I'm bringing this up because. The caliber makes a difference in that, again, if it's a grizzly poking his head through the window and you shoot it with a .22, you're just going to make it mad, <laughs> unless you hit it in the brain. You know? yeah. But they have really thick skulls. So any kind of a bird, it's going to kill it, at that, especially at that range, and especially with a shotgun. So if it's just birds, sandhill cranes, owls, what have you, these are very effective weapons. But what they're finding is that no effect. No effect. So as as we're seeing here is now they're armed. They go back inside the house and they're just kind of waiting for the approach. So there's this one kind of humanoid, homunculus, kind of goblin, weird looking creature with these giant clawed hands with its arms raised, moving towards the house. They go back inside like, <laughs> did you see what I see? And apparently when this thing's about 20 feet away, that's when they open fire. Now that is one account. The other account that I had read is that they did not fire till one of these things pressed its face up against the screen. Yeah. So as we are here at this point, what they can see is that this thing's now approaching the house. It's about 20 feet away. Keep this picture in your mind. Glowing yellow eyes, giant clawed hands. And here's an important point. They said these things were kind of silvery and luminescent and glowing. Yes. And in the newspaper article, they said it was like they were clad with metal, some kind of suit or armor of, of some sort. But what they didn't say was that they were green or that they had scales or feathers or anything else. Never said that. Not mentioned in the initial reports by the family. So you're seeing, though, some kind of luminescent silvery, either a suit or jumpsuit or flight suit of some kind, or that's how their skin was. But none of the other things that you'll see later on, and again, the moniker of Green Little Man did not happen until much later. So they open fire. Now, what happens when they hit them? Because it's kind of comical, Scott. Well, they just flip backwards. <laughs> they and did then a they flip in the air. run away. Yeah. And then they come back. In, in one case, one was up on a branch. Right. Which they shot at it. With a shotgun. It, and it floated down to the ground. Yeah. It flipped backwards and then floated down right. to the ground. They shot at one on a fence. They did have fence around the property, by the way, and I want to make this clear. On one side, the fence was only three feet tall and kind of dilapidated. In the back, they had a cyclone fence that was halfway falling down, had a gate in it in the back of the property. And on the right side, there was another fence, chicken wire, I believe. Just kind of haphazard, not really very effective fences. No. But yeah. when the authorities came and were examining the property and they went over to where one of the guys said they had shot one right. on the fence, where it had fallen down, down, the authorities did observe a patch of luminescence, a glowing something down in the grass where it would have fallen. Well, there you go. Sci-fi alien blood. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm not making a joke but, about well, that. I don't it know was... if it's blood, though. That's <laughs> no, the thing. It could right. just be something. Because the other thing they said during the report was that they seemed to glow up, as my son says, <laughs> right. more when they were being shot. It was almost like a reaction. Yeah. Could we be talking about a force field? Who knows? A force I don't field, know. or it's some kind of live action, life size shooting gallery, like these ducks. <laughs> like yeah, said, duck like, hunter. And, yeah. and it, it flips over. It flips comes, back. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's disgusting. like a carnival, by it, the way. It was, I will say that. A little bit like a carnival. It is a little bit like a carnival, but it's like the Jersey Devil. That thing's impossible. It does None of this makes sense. Right. But that's the way these things go. There's no sense to be made of this. It's like, well, that's not rational. This well, thing wouldn't do a backflip and 
then scurry off and then reappear again? Like well, Right. Well, let's talk about the other actual, where the weapons were actually discharged. There right. was another case where Billy Ray went out the front door, I believe. Yes. And they ha- there's a little overhang. You can see it in one of the pictures of the house over the front door, like a little rain roof that's not very big. It's only right. a foot or two overhang there. And one of these things reached down and the claw like grabbed his hair. <laughs> it pulled his hair. Yeah. Well, this is what's funny. Okay, so now this is from the newspaper article. After the first shot, they see this thing, bing, you know, it does its little flip and scurries off like, well, I think we got it. You yeah. know, I think we hit it. We got to go check on this thing. So they go outside. Now, Billy Ray's in front. Lucky's right behind him. As Billy Ray goes out, there, yes, you said there's a little low overhang to protect from the rain over the front door. As he's going out, this giant clawed hand comes down and pulls, grabs onto Billy Ray's hair and pulls his hair. He jerks away, but they then rush out of the front of the house. And I believe one of them then shoots this thing. That's right. One of them does shoot it. And again, it flips and disappears for a minute. And there's another time when they shoot one up on the roof and it goes down over the ridge beam over the backside of the roof. Right. And they just keep coming back and they keep not being hurt. And the one that was shot through the window was shot at point-blank range. Point-blank in the face. The face just disappears. They go outside. There's nothing there. Nothing there. So there's a bunch of different things going on. And and what we try to do here, I'm trying to do just personally on my own little crusade here, is draw a connection and a line and similarities between all these things, no matter how disparate they are. But there's some skinwalker elements here, like the big wolf that the Shermans, Terry Sherman, shot. No effect, but a chunk of rotting, decayed flesh seems to fly off the wolf, as they described it. And so there is a little bit of physical effect here, but not what you would expect, and nothing that seems to slow them down or kill them. But there's a huge trickster element here by the hair pulling and them coming back. Like, if these things are real, what's the point of like, wait, 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 we just want to talk to you. (laughs) Don't shoot. And they keep getting shot, and they keep coming back. And this is when I want to talk a little bit about when they came back after the authorities left. Right. Because, you know, the authorities came, and they did their whole search, and then didn't find anything, you know, yay or nay, towards the actual events occurring. They leave. These things come back to the house. Now, they're in this report from the Center for UFO Studies. They took excerpts from a private communication between an Albert Andre that was investigating what had happened there for NICAP, which is the National Investigations Committee for Aerial Phenomenon. Right. We talked a little bit about NICAP when we had John Ventry on for the Kecksburg episode, which not too far from this area, by the way, in terms of- General region. General region. And one of the things that Andre found when he interviewed Glennie Lankford in 1959, and there was a statement that she made to him- about that night. And after this, I want to mention a little bit about Glennie Langford's yeah. uh, character and believability. But the first thing that I want to say was that she had been describing how she saw one of the creatures during their second visit at about 3.30 in the morning. She was lying on her bed in the living room trying to go to sleep when it came up to the window beside the fireplace, seeming to have come around the chimney. That's where the quote from the top of the show came. I turned my head three different times because I thought maybe my eyes were fooling me. But every time I turned my head back, there he was. How far away was he? He asked. How close to the screen did he come? She waited a minute before she answered. It was not an uncertain pause nor a pause to create suspense. It was more as if she were seeing the picture again in her mind's eye. Quote, close enough to put his little clawy hands up on it. 
she said. Here's the other thing is when I mentioned that was the second time, the first time that she actually saw it, this is what happened. She said that she went out in the hallway and she got down next to Billy Ray and said, now just what have you been seeing? And he replied, wait and you'll see. And I believe in this case, they had turned the lights off. And that was her idea. They turned the lights off. They crouched down in the dark. And she said, quote, we remained crouched down about three feet from the screen door, the front door, for about 20 minutes when I saw one approaching the door. Billy and I remained crouching until it came right up to the screen. It looked like a five-gallon gasoline can with a head on top <laughs> and small right. legs. Yeah. It was a shimmering bright metal, like on my refrigerator. I tried to get up from my crouch position to move back farther away from the door. I did not make it, as I'm heavy, and my legs have become stiff from remaining in a crouch position a long time. And being in the dark, I lost my balance and fell flat on the floor, making a thud-like noise and letting out a shriek. At the same time, the thing jumped back into the yard, and Billy shot at it right through the screen. It then jumped up, we thought, right on the roof of the house. As Billy went out the door to get another shot at it, the thing's clawy hand snatched at Billy's head. By that time, Aline had come to the door. She grabbed Billy's arm and snatched him back into the house. By then, my son Lucky, who had been guarding the other doorway, the back door, had also arrived at the front door coming through the house. He pushed out the door past Billy and Aline and shot at the thing while it was still on the overhang above the front door. So this is all the stuff that's happening. And Mrs. Langford apparently also, she thought they weren't really out to harm them. She kind of just wanted to close the windows and doors. <laughs> yeah, and, right, because she, she yeah. wasn't sensing any aggression, but the boys were concerned. They're whipped up, sure. Yeah. And, and like you said, there's children there. And when it comes to being a parent, you do whatever you're going to have to do to protect them. Right. And just to talk a little bit about Mrs. Langford and her yeah. believability as a witness, she had two other sons who lived in Hopkinsville. And when they first heard the report of what had happened out there, apparently they didn't believe it. Their, their right. own family story. As, as most people wouldn't. You can't blame them. Right. You know, and they, yeah. they thought it was some kind of joke. They were interviewed during the course of the story by somebody. Right, right. And when they found out that their mom, Mrs. Langford, had seen it too, they changed their complete views and said, quote, if mama saw it, it was there. Yeah. She was a very serious woman. And that was one of the things that Isabel said in her interviews with her. She didn't seem to have great big sense of humor. Didn't <laughs> like Maybe a little dry. She did make a little dry joke with Isabel towards the end because Isabel apologized for, she said, I'm so sorry yeah. I have bothered you so much doing this additional interview. And right. she supposedly said to her, you didn't bother me as much as some of them other folks did. Yeah. That, you have to realize, and, and this is what comes through in Isabel's description, they weren't out to relay this story again and again and again and make some money and get a bunch of fame for this. This brought a lot of hardship to them. JC lost a bunch of jobs. He lost a bunch a of result. jobs because, especially back then, well, even today, you're seen as a kook. Yeah. You're crazy. There's something wrong with you. So Glennie Lankford, Ma Lankford, as I've been calling her, reminds me a lot of my great-grandmother. These are kind of tough pioneer women. Survival is at the forefront, and there's not a lot of nonsense to be had. Now, my great-grandmother, she had a great sense of humor, and she was very lively. But you come up on somebody's house unannounced, you're likely to get shot. Even if you hold your little clawy hands. <laughs> well, especially your big clawy hands. If you hands. got giant clawy hands, especially. But you got them up. Yeah, it doesn't matter. No, they don't know what you're going to do with that. But that's kind of the rough conditions that a lot of people don't understand, especially nowadays, is that you respect people's areas. And uh, if you come up on somebody's camp or their house unannounced 
with possibly unfriendly intentions. Now, that's interesting you say that because Ma Langford here is the most level-headed, calm person, probably. She's in her early 50s, I think 50 or 51. She's so, 50, yeah. Yeah, she's... Meaning, she, she, by the way, she was born in 1905. Right, right, back then, yes. I always ask people, like, what's the impression you get? Did you feel in danger? Well, again, these guys are, they're younger, they're carnival workers, they've probably seen some rough, uh, some rough trade here. If you come up on somebody's camp, if you're, if you buy your horse out on the trail or you come up to somebody's house and you don't announce yourself and they don't know your intention, your first idea is that they are there to do you harm. So you better defend yourself or in this case, take the first shot. So in regards to this gun battle now that's been happening, here's an interesting quote from the newspaper article. Deputy Sheriff Batts said that the men told him in all They'd fired about four boxes of 22 caliber shells. Now, the article says pistol shells, so that's one discrepancy there is that uh, it wasn't a, a target pistol, which the newspaper article says, we're thinking maybe it's 22, uh, a 22 rifle. Yes. Doesn't really make a difference. It's still the same round. Between the report and the newspaper article, I would side with the report as being more accurate, it, even sure. though it was later. Because also, if the journalist was interviewing them and they said A-22, he might have made the assumption that it was a pistol and not a rifle. Yeah, exactly. So the, the, they didn't specify. My point is that, yes, you want everything in a story or a report to be as accurate as possible, of course. But there are some things that don't matter. So whether it was a pistol or a rifle, that's a discrepancy which I chalk up to the confusion of the scene, especially the next day, but it's still a 22 shell. So it's a small caliber. Now here's the point of that. Deputy Sheriff Batts also quoted a neighbor saying he'd heard shooting over at the Suttons, but distinguished only about four shots and mistook them for firecrackers. Now in the smaller boxes of ammo for 22 caliber, you might get about 50 rounds in one, and then they make larger boxes, again, because people go plinking and target shooting with them, you might get as many as 500 rounds. But four boxes of 50 count rounds, that's 200 shots. Of course, I could do that math at least. <laughs> What's strange is that the one neighbor said, yeah, I heard about four shots. And again, that's a small caliber and over a longer distance may very well sound like firecrackers. But the other neighbor, what did they say? There was Scott? another neighbor who said it sounded like a small war. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And if they'd gone through, not only that, a shotgun blast is, is much louder. It sounds different than a regular rifle round. It's also harder and it takes longer to reload. Well, yeah, it depends on if it's a brake barrel, single barrel, 20-gauge uh, shotgun or the 12-gauge. Or the you're not going to get as many shots off. Usually those uh, 22 long rifles, they're semi-automatic, so you can, you can ping off a lot of shots. But the idea is that one guy, one neighbor said it sounded like a war. The other one, like, meh, four shots. I don't know, firecrackers. I didn't pay much attention to it. It goes to show, you know, again, how eyewitness accounts, not that they're wrong, but what different people hear. And there's also, I just learned this fact, watching a documentary about the Civil War is that this happened. It's a weird phenomenon where you get an audio shadow. An artillery battle that happened in one town in the Civil War, I'm not going to get into the whole history of it, but basically the, the next town over, people who were kind of outside of it didn't hear anything. And people who were much further away heard a whole battle. So these kind of things can happen. Doesn't mean one neighbor heard it inaccurately or they're lying or these guys are making it up. My point is strange things happen and this is a very strange case. So that description of uh, it was four firecrackers or it's a full-on gun battle, like from a sound effects record, are just some of the differing descriptions of this crazy scene going on. So now we're back at the investigation going on at the farmhouse as we described before and there's about 25 people on the scene of differing levels of authority here, but all uh, law enforcement. It wasn't without some comic relief 
which I think this is good to point out because it's in the newspaper article and it's a little funny, but it makes a good point. So what happened when they were out there poking around in the dark? Well, I'm glad they mentioned that article. I want to also read this brief excerpt from the Center for UFO Studies report about this incident that took place when they were all out there, like you said, looking for whatever was out there in the dark. Whatever the cause, the contagion of the Sutton's fear, the strangeness of their errand, or an actual sense that somewhere in the darkness beyond the farmhouse, non-human entities might be watching, everyone's nerves were on edge. Someone stepped on a cat's tail. The cat yowled. You never saw so many pistols unholstered so fast in your life, Sheriff Greenwell said. The fame of this anonymous cat seems to be permanent. Everyone I talked to mentioned that screech in the ensuing panic. (laughs) Well, that's barring the, uh, you don't want to step on a kitty's tail. No, you don't. But, you know, and this speaks a little bit to the idea of mass hysteria, people being on edge. But but conversely, the other thing that this report says and other things say is that they had an uneasy feeling that was more of a gut instinct. Absolutely. And that's an important point I'm trying to make here is that, yeah, it's kind of comical because one of the MPs steps on it and everybody freaks out. Well, as the newspaper article says, quote, there was much activity and scurrying around on the part of those present, unquote. As goofy as this may sound in the retelling, and hopefully we're trying to make it clear here, is that, yeah, this is kind of wacky and, all right, maybe they're just some farm folk that are mistaken. Maybe they're not drunk, but maybe they don't know what they're looking at. They're not very sophisticated. Well, the authorities, all of them, on scene, believed them enough and believed how freaked out and serious these people seem to be that they're on the lookout for anything. So I think this paints a good picture of the tone is that, yeah, they don't know what they're up against. They don't know whether to believe these folks, but deep down, they're taking this kind of seriously and they were genuinely spooked themselves. And I I know there's a lot of excitement going about and it's dark and and again, it's kind of comical, but if this is a goofy story that's like, you know what, send a car out there, check this out, it's probably nothing, that's what it would have been. And I know, like, as I said earlier, it's like, yeah, it's a little bit of excitement for kind of a sleepy farm town of Kelly just outside of Hopkinsville. So like, sure, everybody jump in the car. Let's go check this out. It's Sunday night. Nothing else is happening. When they get there, there's just something about, I think for them, I think for the authorities, that the way that these people are telling us this story, that this does not look like a practical joke. They seem like fine people and are are trustworthy and, and sure Maybe the one carny guy, he's he's getting a little excited with the descriptions and, and it's getting a little fantastical and he's a little animated and, and uh, you know, that's carny folk for you. But the rest of them were generally so freaked out and they did see that there was evidence, again, that they were shooting through the screens at least, or at least the one screen, and that something was going on that genuinely spooked these people. So anyway, I think that that's a good indication. And again, even this article here, if they were to report them as uh, as silly or this may have been uh, just a big joke later on, it certainly was the tone of this article here that came out the next day. And I don't believe it was the tone or the attitude of the first responders on the scene. You know, one of the things, just a a little interjection here, Mm -hmm. one of the things that's particularly weird about this episode oh, it's for all me. weird. This yeah. one is really weird. I <laughs> yeah. do love this one. Yeah. 
But one of the things that's particularly weird for me, we've been getting emails to do this for quite a while. One was very coincidental, which was like just like a week ago. Yeah, yeah. someone <laughs> yeah, was, when are we going to do that one? And and they've been coming in for, I would say, two years. I mean, yeah. We're only just, at, we'll be three years old in October. But the thing that was really strange for me, and this is kind of an everything is connected, uh, to, <laughs> to quote Mr. Forrest e- Burgess. EIC. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, this is EIC. We laid out the plan to do this show in our lineup about... I don't know, two or three months ago. When I put this one in, I just thought, you know what? This is fun. This will be a nice UFO one. Yeah. Maybe we haven't, that's a little bit lighthearted and we haven't done one of those in a while. Oh, it's also goblins. And yeah, it's yeah. goblins. That's <laughs> kind of cool. But honestly, when I put it into our lineup and, and we talked about doing it, we had no idea that the original event took place on August 21st. Yeah. And that that was perfectly aligned with the pending eclipse. Right, right. And I just wanted to put that out there that's strange that not only did we decide to do this, it's coming out at the beginning of August, right before the eclipse. Yeah. And it's also about an event that the anniversary of is on the eclipse. All of that, the timing of when it's released, the fact that it has to do with the eclipse, all of that is sheer coincidence. We well, didn't, there you go. we were just going to, this was just in the lineup and this is how it worked out. So, yeah. and when that all occurred to me, I think somebody in the arc was like, oh yeah, it's like, it's the same thing as the eclipse. And I was like, wait, what? And <laughs> then I was yeah. just like, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. It's a little weird. Well, you know, I'm not saying there's anything behind it, but it's just, no. it's, it's interesting. It's the kind of thing I love. Like I said, if there's a special guest appearance at the Kelly Little Green Men Festival this year on yeah. the 21st, then we'll know that there's an actual connection. Like, yes, we've been waiting since the fifties to say hello again. Please don't shoot. <laughs> yeah, that, that, I know it looks like a lot of fun. We do backflips, but it really hurts. I guarantee you some hoaxer is building a drone in a garage right now to fly Oh, to freak and, people yeah, out. Yeah. yeah. Well, especially when it gets dark. Like I said before, at the top of the show, if you've ever been in a really good, decent eclipse, full eclipse at a good spot, it's really something to behold. The quality of the light is just indescribable. It's not like twilight so much or sunrise. It's just weird. And so you can see why ancient peoples paid attention to this and marked the time and thought that the gods were trying to talk to them. You know, something uh, was weird about to happen. And in this case, who knows? It might be very interesting. Certainly, I think the people of Kelly, Kentucky, will be paying attention. Well, that festival is going to be a lot of fun this year. I'll tell you that. Absolutely. Yes. If you're in the area, just go check it out. Let us know how it went. A lot of uh, friendly folks and and some good food. And uh, certainly Kentucky bourbon alone is worth a trip. Ah, yes. And somebody's going to win a 2007 eclipse. (laughs) Exactly. So there's plenty of reason to go. So in getting back to 1955 and the Sutton family farm and the end of this newspaper article that I thought was important in setting the tone and kind of what was going on right, you know, the next day, two police officers had gone back to the farm early Monday morning. Now this would be August 22nd, 1955. Very next day. Very next day, early in the morning. And again, this is, uh, I think makes a good point because if this was just some prank done by a bunch of hicks on a farm, hopped up on moonshine, They wouldn't have come back out, I don't believe, unless, you know, they were called out again. But they go back to check on their own. And early that morning, the two officers who had returned reported hearing that the little men had returned to the Sutton home at about 3.30 a.m., as we told you. So that's the word they get. Now, later in the day, later that morning, other investigators, according to this newspaper article, went back to Kelly and they were told that Sutton and Taylor had gone to Evansville that day. 
They were not at the farm. Now, that's an interesting point because one, as we'll get into later, and people who kind of um, ridicule them is like, well, they're just out to make money. It's like, well, if you're going to do that and tell this crazy story on a Sunday night, wouldn't you want to be there first thing Monday morning to capitalize on this when the reporter's there and you call the radio station and, uh, and you're selling up concession booths and you're making t-shirts and all that kind of stuff? So I'm not sure why the two men had gone to Evansville due north in Indiana that morning. Well, according to the Center for UFO Studies report, they went to either to borrow a truck or pick up some furniture or something like that. They had business. And, and Billy yeah. Ray actually went out hunting with a neighbor. And then so, and all of the four adult women stayed back at the farmhouse. Okay. So they're there. But, you know, again, people said, well, they're there just to capitalize on the sensational hoax and make some money, but didn't sound, at least for the next day, sounded like they were there to set up the concession booths right away and the dunk tank and all that stuff. So one, they go back to check up on them. They wanted to examine the site in the daytime. In the daylight. Yeah, yeah. sure. So that's interesting. Now, as this article closes out, I think it makes some good statements here. Now, this is before, of course, the Kentucky New Era newspaper apparently started making fun of the family or right. distancing themselves from the story, which is how I see it. It happened with a newspaper that distanced themselves kind of from the Latoya Amons possession case. Right. Where they didn't know how to handle that. Right. And they're a respectable newspaper. They can't be seen muddling up in these kind of strange things. So... As we see here at the close of this newspaper article, I think there's some good statements that are made that are, that are kind of telling. So I want to kind of read these as quotations from the newspaper article. Quote, Officers who visited the scene during last night's excitement were reluctant to express any opinion today in regard to the reported invasion of Kelly. All officials appeared to agree that there was no drinking involved. Only outspoken comment came from Frank Dudas, city police desk sergeant, who was not on duty last night, Sunday night, and has not visited the scene so far, he said, quote, within quotes, I think the whole story is entirely possible. Sergeant Dudas was one of two city policemen who reported seeing three flying saucers early one morning last summer. He said, I know I saw them, and if I saw them, the Kelly story certainly could be true. <laughs> That's going to wrap up part one of our series on the Kelly Hopkinsville encounter. Join us next week for part two, where we're going to go real deep on the possible explanations for this story. Special thanks to The Ark for all of their outstanding work on this episode. Please remember to support our sponsors, get books in our bookstore, buy our ringtone, join our Facebook group, come see us at Podcast Movement, and check out the podcast, Tannis. Special thanks to John Bolin. Hi, I'm Christy. Hi, I'm Brad Middleton. And I give permission to astonishing legends to use my voice however they see fit. Galaxy-wide in perpetuity. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees, and the theme is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to The Ark and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel. But most importantly, we want to thank our listeners. You can find us online at astonishinglegends.com, as well as Facebook, Patreon, Twitter, and Instagram. Copyright Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Good night.